As I mentioned, our study, is, our study focus is the book of Proverbs. And I've entitled the entire series, Wisdom, Living Successfully in a Treacherous World. Living Successfully in a Treacherous World. And tonight what we need to do is to orient our perspective to establish the trajectory, the plan, the framework for moving forward. As I mentioned already, this is going to be more of a summary of our study for the whole year rather than a specific dive into the material itself. I need to set it up. I need to get us in the right context for approaching this very important book in our Bible. Now, to do that, it's important to consider the treachery or the turmoil of the world in which we live. I don't think there'd be anybody here today who would say that things are going well in society. Perhaps if that's your conclusion, you've not been turning on the the news, you don't have internet, and we probably envy you for that. For anyone here who's familiar with what's going on around them, whether that's at work, even in families, certainly what we see happening on the streets across the country, what's taking place in political dialogue in the universities, the public schools, there is a lot of chaos. That, I think, everybody acknowledges as a very dangerous thing in our culture today. Let me just give you some examples of the kind of foolishness that people are engaged in today. And this is not at some obscure, in some obscure corner of society. This kind of foolishness is evident in the highest levels. For example, confusion concerning what a man is. I looked at a website recently, diverted there by something else, where the topic of discussion, and this was an important, uh, an important health portal, a website devoted to discussing medical issues. And the question that was asked is this, can men get pregnant? Is it possible? Now, that would be something that in past generations would be reserved for lunacy, the funny bin. But this is discussed seriously at the highest levels of medical academies. And the answer that was given on that website said this, yes, it's possible for men to become pregnant and give birth to children of their own. In fact, it's probably a lot more common than you might think. In order to explain, we need to break down some common misconceptions about how we understand the term man. Last year, in one of the Democratic debates for for their nominee for president, interviewer Lester Holt asked Julian Castro, the former housing and urban development uh, minister for the Obama, uh, the Obama uh, office, 
he asked this question. Secretary Castro, this one is for you. All of you on this stage support a woman's right to an abortion. You all support some version of a government health care option. Would your plan cover abortion, Mr. Secretary? And this is the response of Julian Castro. And remember, he was considered to be a fairly substantive uh, candidate for the nominee from the Democratic Party. He answers this way, yes, it would. I don't believe only in reproductive freedom. I believe in reproductive justice. And you know, what that means is that just because a woman... Or, let's also not forget someone in the trans community, a trans female. And a trans female is someone defined as a biological male who identifies as female. He goes on to say, a trans female, that that person also has the right to choose. They shouldn't be prevented, especially if they are poor, from exercising their right to choose. So I absolutely would cover the right to have an abortion. He's talking about a biological male who identifies as a female, and he specifically makes the point in his effort to be politically correct to suggest that maybe men need abortions as well. Or consider a case in Texas that was decided just last month over a seven-year-old boy named James. Sadly, his parents are divorced and are going through a very a very bitter court battle over custody over the twin boys, James and his brother. And the father in particular has uh, engaged in this fight for custody because of the mother's plan to force the seven-year-old boy, James, through gender transition. The mother, who is actually a practicing pediatrician, noticed that her one son, James, liked the movie Frozen. And also that he had, a, he had an affinity to some toys that girls typically play with. The mother took this as necessary proof that one of her boys, her twin boys, was actually a girl. And she began socially transitioning him to a girl, dressing him up in girls' clothing and calling him Luna. When the boy is with his dad, he refuses to wear girl clothes And admits that he is forced to do so by his own mother. But last month, a court in Texas gave sole custody of James to the mother. And allowed her to move forward with her plan, which would presumably even include chemical castration. That is a court in Texas. As you probably heard, it's also now fashionable in the academy to argue about whether 2 plus 2 equals 4. This is being debated even in schools such as Harvard and Princeton. A math education professor at Brooklyn College, Lori Rubel, recently argued that the assertion that 2 plus 2 equals 4 reeks of white supremacist patriarchy. She writes, you all must know that the idea of math, that math is objective or neutral, is a myth. Another example, and this will be the last one, we could certainly go on and on, 
Just last week, NPR, National Public Radio, supported probably by your tax dollars, actually promoted a newly published book, just came out last week, end of August, called In Defense of Looting. Its author, Vicki Osterweil, makes the case that looting is actually a necessary and essential part of protesting for civil rights. During the interview, she stated, When I use the word looting, I mean mass expropriation of property, mass shoplifting during a moment of upheaval or riot. That's the thing I'm defending. I'm not defending any situation in which property is stolen by force. However, she goes on to say, quote, Looting does a number of important things. It gets people what they need for free immediately. Which means that they are capable of living and reproducing their lives without having to rely on jobs or a wage. She went on to say, quote, It also attacks the very way in which food and things are distributed. It attacks the idea of property. And it attacks the idea that in order for someone to have a roof over their head or have a meal ticket, they have to work for a boss in order to buy things that people just like them somewhere else in the world had to make under the same conditions. It points to the way in which that's unjust. End quote. In other words, you have the right to steal Nike shoes and new iPhones because people somewhere else in the world were unfairly, unfairly treated in the workplace. So you have the right to get it for free. Totally illogical. Foolish. And like I said, the list goes on. And as I spent time over the last several weeks in particular reflecting upon the kinds of problems that are ailing our society, I tried to summarize them into a few basic observations. And these would be the things that I think are at the core of what we're seeing in our culture today, the core problems. Number one, there is a rebellion against the law of cause and effect. There is the attempt by a growing portion of our culture, perhaps unlike any other time in the history of the country, to overthrow the law that you must reap what you sow. There is an intense struggle to overthrow a moral order that God has programmed into the very fabric of creation that says if you sow tares, you reap tares. You do not reap wheat. But in our society today, there is the expectation and even the demand that if you sow tares, you can get wheat. And if you don't, you can rebel. If you commit a crime, you should not face punishment. If you associate with criminals, you should not be associated with criminal behavior. If you incur debt, it's not yours to pay. If you don't work, you should still be guaranteed a wage. A second fundamental pillar that is being 
torn down in our society today is that of personal responsibility. There is a a very deliberate rebellion against the need for personal responsibility. Now, this has been going on for a long time. This is inherent in man. But just consider the abortion industry. If there is one element of our society that puts this problem, this sickness on display, it is the abortion industry. You can sleep with a woman, and if she gets pregnant, you don't have responsibility. You can go and kill the baby. Here's a statistic from 2018, from Planned Parenthood. In the calendar year, actually it was from September 2017 to September 2018, Planned Parenthood performed the highest number of abortions it has ever done. They probably surpassed that last year. I don't have the statistics for 2019. But in 2018, they surpassed the highest number of abortions they have ever done. They murdered 345,672 babies in the United States. That amounts to 947 murders a day. That in itself, it's enough to show us that our society is sick. That there is no concept of personal responsibility. You can go beyond that. The effort to empty the prisons and to think that somehow that will create a more stable society. The effort to defund law enforcement, thinking that it is law enforcement, the enforcement of laws that creates criminality. And that if you just remove the enforcement of laws, you won't have criminality. Talk about an attack on personal responsibility. Another pillar that is under attack is the rebellion against the right of external authority. Now, certainly this is a product of our postmodern era where the individual defines truth for himself, where the individual is radically autonomous. There is no one and nothing that can define who he or she is. So a birth certificate certainly can't tell me whether I'm male or female. A parent cannot Tell me whether I'm male or female. A police officer cannot tell me whether I need to put my hands up or not. There is a rebellion against the right of external authority. Any authority that is outside of myself. No one, including God, and nothing, including nature, can tell me who I am, how I must live, And so we come up with personal definitions of justice, personal definitions of morality, personal definitions of liberty, and become violently offended if anybody encroaches upon that autonomy. There is a tolerance for destruction, and in particular, connected to this, is the obliteration of fathers in the home. Society falls apart when dads aren't present 
or either abuse their authority or never exercise it. We're brought to the point where we wonder, what is there to do? We're left with a question, an age-old question. A question that indicates to us that as treacherous as our times are, there actually is nothing new under the sun. The problem of foolishness is not characteristic only of our day. Many, many centuries ago, Job himself asked the question, but where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. Well, he asked that question, and certainly that's the question for today. Where is wisdom? Where can you find wisdom? Man does not know its value, and it is not found in the land of the living. And this would be a pretty depressing question if he did not also provide the answer. Just a few verses later, he answers his own question. And he says this, God understands wisdom's way, and he knows its place. We have a need, men, in light of what is going on around us, and probably in light of the fact that you have been stretched and challenged beyond what you have been stretched and challenged before. The very tumultuous circumstances of this present day is stretching your ability to cope, your ability to respond, your ability to lead. Well, there is very good news. There is wisdom. God understands wisdom's way, and He knows its place. And that is why I think this study in the book of Proverbs, the book on wisdom, is so essential for us in the months to come. Things undoubtedly will become worse. And we need wisdom. We need to know how to walk successfully in this tumultuous world. And in light of that, I don't think that there's a better book to turn to that will answer these questions in such clarity, in such directness, than the book of Proverbs. In fact, one of the things that I've thought to myself as I've watched some of these, these things play themselves out on national news, and as I've listened to people prescribe solutions, I've been asking, who is ready to quote from the book of Proverbs? And it's absent. And so the pundits and the politicians spin their wheels no wisdom there, but God knows. And He has made it available to us in some of the most direct, concrete forms. And so I'm excited, men, that over the next year, we will devote ourselves to studying this book, the book of Proverbs, and all the themes that we find in this book. And I can guarantee you that as we dig down into the book of Proverbs, 
the vast majority of which came from the wisest person who ever lived after Jesus Christ, that we will find relevant answers that perfectly meet the need of the day. The wisdom that we find in the book of Proverbs is not an old, outdated wisdom. It is the kind of wisdom that grows even more powerful and apropos as time goes on. I like what Richard Mayhew said when he said this in his book, Practicing Proverbs. He said this, and this was decades ago, and it certainly proves true today. He said, quote, if I had one message to give to the CEOs, educators, political leaders, media pundits, and social scientists of our day, it would be the teaching of Proverbs, which majors on making one wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ. Proverbs 30, verses 2 to 4, and 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 15. It makes us wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ and teaching the wisest way to live for the glory of God. Or as Charles Bridges said in his classic commentary on the book of Proverbs, he said this, Doubtless, if the world were governed by the whole wisdom of this single book, it would be a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, as we start this study of Proverbs, it is important to talk about some of the general themes and the framework of this book. Let's consider for a moment what the purpose of Proverbs is in a, in a more specific way. Why do we have Proverbs in our canon? Why is there this collection of pithy sayings and unique kinds of instructions? Why is it in our Bibles. Let me give you a summary of the overall purpose of this book. The overall purpose of the book of Proverbs can be stated as this. It is to provide the young and simple with knowledge and skill necessary to live successfully before God and man. It is to provide the young and the simple with the knowledge and skill necessary to live successfully before God and man. It assumes that there is a need. Proverbs wasn't written for the healthy. It was written for the sick. It was written for those devoid of wisdom. And it was written specifically to guide them along the path, to provide them with the knowledge and the skill, the knowing of what and the knowing of how, To live a life that is successful in the eyes of God and also in the eyes of one's neighbor. It has both a vertical purpose and a horizontal purpose. And of course, that success is not success defined according to this world, but success defined according to God, the creator of man and the judge of all the living. One commentator put it this way, the book of Proverbs remains the model curriculum for humanity to learn how to live under God and before humankind. And of course, this presumes the reality that this kind of need is is met for a kind of person 
who, who needs this know-how because he's living in a world that is, that is broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It is life outside the Garden of Eden. It is life lived, banished from the place of utopia and perfection. It is life that is to be lived in a cursed world that groans with the burden of sin. This book was written to provide the young and the needy with the knowledge and the skill necessary to live successfully before God and man in that context. This comes out in the preamble to the book where the writer Solomon says this, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now this purpose, this general overall purpose, can be followed up with two more specific purposes as we look at the the overall content of the book of Proverbs. Let me give you two more specific purposes. First of all, specific purpose number one, it is to provide young men with an instruction manual for preparation for leadership. Now, it's important to note that this book has repeated references to kings and makes many comments on administration, on that which we would call leadership issues. The book of Proverbs is filled with this. It was compiled, as one writer wrote, it was compiled, quote, for use by the young men of Israel's society who are being groomed for positions of leadership, end quote. Now, you remember Solomon as the great, most prosperous king of Israel. That as he succeeded his father David to the throne, he oversaw the largest expansion ever in the nation of Israel. It grew in its, in its breadth and depth. It grew in its population, its wealth. And there was a need to have men at different levels administrating this growing and flourishing kingdom. And so Solomon collects these proverbs specifically to help those men prepare for their responsibilities. And I would say this, if there's one book on leadership that you men need to read if you are serious about leadership, if there's one book that you need to master as the greatest book ever written on leadership, it is the book of Proverbs. There's a second specific purpose, and this one hits much closer to home. The second specific purpose is this, to provide fathers a curriculum for preparing their children, particularly their sons, for success in life. It's been God's design all along that after he created Adam in his likeness, Adam would have children in his likeness and would pass on the wisdom that he received from his father to his own son. 
That is God's design, that fathers would be the repository of wisdom. And that fathers would be the ones who would take the responsibility, the primary responsibility of teaching their children how to live successfully in this world. It's not that they need to teach them algebra or geography per se. It's that they teach their children, it's that they teach their sons how to be men. It's that they teach them how to live. It's that they teach them justice and equity and righteousness. Those are the most important subjects in a child's learning. And so when you read the book of Proverbs, you find repeated references to sons. As Solomon says, my son, my son, my son, my son, over and over and over again. He's not just trying to prepare him for the throne. He recognizes his duty as a dad. And not only that, you see repeated references to the role of parents in raising up children and the consequences of their failure and the consequences of failure of children to heed their parents. It's a major theme in the book of Proverbs. And this theme works out what we read earlier in the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 to 7, where Moses says to the people of Israel, these words which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And then notice this. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up. It's one thing to teach these precepts, but when we see Moses here referring to to talking about them when you sit and stand and walk and lie down and rise up. There's a reference there to the everyday behaviors of life. And Moses is charging the fathers in particular that they would be active in passing on to their children generational wisdom built upon both the scriptures and upon nature and experience, and they would be the ones to pass on this wisdom as they walked along the way on their journey to the field or to the well or as they fixed the roof or as they tended their cattle. Now, as we think about this more, let's go a little bit deeper. We understand those purposes. Let's look at the framework of the book of Proverbs, some, some bigger ideas that really form a skeleton to how this content is going to be communicated to us. Now, when we talk about Proverbs, it's important to note this. The, the key word, the one word that summarizes all of the contents of the book is the word wisdom. So if you want to come up with one word that is a synonym for the entire contents of 31 chapters... One word that stands in the place of the entire book, it's just this word, wisdom. Wisdom. We're going to define wisdom in a lot greater detail in the weeks to come. So I'm not going to get into it too much. We're going to devote a whole evening to it. But let me give this summation. Wisdom is the essence of what man needs for a proper life. Again, we're not talking about nuclear physics here. We're not talking about sending rockets up to the moon. We're talking about something much more important. 
what man needs for a proper life. It is practical knowledge of the laws of life and of the world based on experience. The writer goes on to say this. It consists in knowing that at the bottom of things, think of this, at the bottom of things, at the basis of life, there is an order at work. Silently, and often in a scarcely noticeable way, making for a balance of events. One has, however, to be able to wait for it and also be capable of seeing it. There is an order. There is a moral order that God has programmed into us as his image bearers, and even into the created world as a whole. And when that order is upset, when men run or walk contrary to that order, chaos results. And that's exactly what we see happening, whether it's in the court in Texas, whether it's at a democratic debate, or the streets of a large city. When men walk contrary to this order, chaos results. Now, when we talk about this order, what are we talking about? Well, it's important to note this, that when we look at the book of Proverbs, there's two primary sources from which the the speaker of these Proverbs gathers this basis for this fundamental order. Now, you've, I'm sure, read portions, if not all, of the book of Proverbs. And you notice this, that one of the main things you see is a repeated reference to nature. The the speaker of the Proverbs will refer to ants and to locusts, to rock badgers. He'll refer to plant life. He'll talk about the common experiences of mankind. He'll refer to weather. You see, what he sees is that nature itself, what we can call God's general revelation, nature itself communicates this order. One writer puts it this way, the implication is that God, through wisdom, placed order in the very fabric of the cosmos. The whole book of Proverbs is designed to exhibit the order that holds together all of life. Within this context, there is a solidarity between all parts of God's creation over which he is ruler, from the universe itself down to a colony of ants. What one observes in the natural cosmos cosmos has implications for understanding the social and moral order. In other words, what he's saying is this, that God has left his testimony in the created realm. And that testimony is plain. Even in this sin-cursed world, this testimony preaches. It is proclaimed that there is an order that God has made. If you want to 
trace this out further, just go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul talks about the fact that God's wrath is revealed against mankind for all the unrighteousness, ungodliness that man is engaged in. And they do so suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Now notice verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. This moral order is evident even within nature. And Paul even goes on to say this a little bit later in verse 26. He talks about homosexuality and he says this, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. For that which is literally contrary to nature. Paul is saying even there that nature itself renders a verdict against homosexuality and transgenderism. It's there. It's evident. And when mankind rejects the testimony of nature, chaos results. That's not the only source for this understanding of the moral order and the need for right living. It is especially found in the Scriptures. These are the two sources from which the speaker of Proverbs draws his wisdom, his understanding. He draws it first from general revelation, from the testimony of God in the created world. A created world that even to this day, even while groaning under the weight of the curse, still clearly preaches a moral order. But the second and more forceful and more definitive and concrete source is God's special revelation. His verbal revelation, the written word. And what's fascinating to see is how often the writer, the speaker of Proverbs will make reference to the law. To the commandments, speaking of truth communicated in verbal form, in propositions and commands. And in fact, an interesting exercise would be to go through the book of Proverbs and see how the Proverbs of Proverbs, all in one way or another, go back to the Ten Commandments. The book of Proverbs really is the practical application of the Ten Commandments, the law of God in daily life. Proverbs describes the commandment as a lamp. That's a very important concept that is evident with, in all of Scripture whenever it refers to God's words. They are a lamp. And Proverbs refers to the law as light. And at the very beginning of the book, the motto is expressed this way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And in 9 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And as we're going to talk about next week when we talk about the fear of the Lord, that is not just a reference to our response to God, but that terminology, fear of the Lord, is a synonym for the very law of God itself. Psalm 19 verse 9. 
This scriptural knowledge, this knowledge of God's special revelation is what is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And the speaker of these Proverbs draws upon these two sources to give us wisdom. Now drawing upon those two sources, it's important to note this. As we look at these two sources, they all communicate three important pillars. And if I could say that the book of Proverbs stands on three legs that are very important to understand for understanding its framework, it's this. First and foremost, pillar number one is submission to the law of cause and effect. Submission to the law of cause and effect. As we see in the book of Proverbs, you will reap what you sow. That is wisdom 101. You cannot get more basic and more profound than that. You will reap what you sow. And a major part of wisdom in all its different areas is to understand that important truth. God is a God of order. And he has created a universe that is predictable. And because it is predictable, we can actually learn and grow. If God wasn't a God of order, there could be no way to learn. There could be no way to grow. There could be no way to predict results. There could be no way to understand the consequences of ideas and actions. But God is a God of order. And so it is inherent in the fabric of creation and inherent in the fabric of Scripture that cause and effect is a fundamental for understanding success in this life. Remember that. Be guided by that principle. We'll get into it more as the series progresses. Number two, the second pillar that supports the wisdom of the book of Proverbs is this submission to the need for personal responsibility. Again, over and over, the book of Proverbs communicates the idea that you are responsible. Life and death hang in the balance. Proverbs doesn't hide that from you. It makes it very clear. And at the end of the day, the book of Proverbs says, you will be responsible for your own fate. That is so important to understand it for growing in wisdom. And again, like I said before, this is the utter antithesis of what's going on in society today. There's the desire to get rid of any personal responsibility. Proverbs says, oh no, don't you dare. There will be no success without accepting personal responsibility. And then number three, submission to the right of external authorities. Whether it is the, the, the authority of nature, whether it is the authority of Scripture, the book of Proverbs makes it clear that you are created to submit. That begins in the most fundamental of relationships, in the father-son relationship. Sons are commanded to submit. They're commanded to listen and to obey. That extends beyond then that immediate intimate circle to the relationship of students to their teachers. And over and over again, the, the writer of Hebrews extols the role of teachers and says to the student, you must listen. Teachers aren't just facilitators. They teach you. Listen. That extends even beyond that to the authority of a king. 
And if there's any one book that establishes the right of a king to rule, it's the book of Proverbs. And then that extends to the ultimate relationship, the creator and judge over his creation. The book of Proverbs makes no qualms about it. You must submit. This is God's world. This is who God is. Now, just a few more words before we break for the evening. And we'll come back to this in the weeks to come. I will provide more information as we dive deeper into this book. But I do want to answer or explain this issue. What what is a proverb? What is a proverb? How do we define that? Now, we're going to see in our study that there's going to be two categories of proverbs. Proverbs that are longer and instructional in nature, and proverbs that are short, one-sentence statements. We're used to the second, most of all, and so let me define that for right now. A proverb. What is a proverb? It, it is a short saying of practical advice on how to live life well. A proverb is a short saying of practical advice on how to live life well. Another writer put it this way, it is a brief, particular expression of truth. I like what a couple of writers state when they say this, a proverb is a short sentence drawn from long experience, right? Finally, another definition here is this, a a proverb is a pithy sentence packed with thought-provoking punch. It is a statement of truth stripped to the bare essentials. That's what makes Proverbs so lovable and so convicting, so memorable and so profound. They're they're packed with thought-provoking punch and yet stripped to the bare essentials. In a longer definition, one writer states this, Proverbs are simple, concrete, and mundane. And at the same time, profound, abstract, and transcendent. Their meanings are singular and particular, yet multifaceted and universal. Proverbs are widespread among the common folk, yet they are collected and utilized by the royal court. They are given as instruction for the young and savored by the aged as well. Aged as well. They present themselves as ancient wisdom, yet are amazingly contemporary. They appear to be closed, fixed, cliche-like, and authoritative, yet they are open to transformation, exception, and situational variation. Those are the Proverbs. And we're going to get into these Proverbs in the weeks and months to come. And our approach is going to be to look at the book in a thematic way, to boil down some of the most basic themes that are dealt with in this book. Things like fearing God, forsaking folly, pursuing wisdom, accepting correction, preserving purity, speaking truth, esteeming work, valuing wealth, enjoying rewards, practicing charity, respecting authority, raising children, handling fools, pursuing justice, acquiring respect, and trusting God. That's our way forward, and I trust that you'll journey with us on this path.
towards wisdom. One final thing. In your notes, there is a list of interpretive principles. I'm not going to go over those now. But when I send you an email this coming week, I'm going to attach to this handout that you have received, I'm going to attach another attachment that's about two and a half pages long. And it will describe each of the eight principles for interpreting Proverbs. It'll describe that in greater length. So I'll send that to you and you can read it as part of your homework. All right? All right, man. Well, it's great to have you here. Let me close in prayer. And then we're going to have a little bit of group time if we can figure this all out with all our new guests. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've already prayed, we want to echo those words again. We look to you for your blessing in the months ahead. Do great things in pressing your truths deep within us so that our knowledge would not remain theoretical or abstract, but you would show your glory to us by pressing these truths into our daily living so that we might taste and see how beautiful your truth is. And ultimately, we pray, Father, that this would result in our conformity to the person of Jesus Christ, who, as Paul said in Colossians 2, is the very embodiment of wisdom. Conform us to him, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.